The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and on all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Far from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw what had been tricked by the wise man, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm uh, Rob Spikestra. I am head, headmaster of Morning Star Academy. Pretty much means that I'm the lightning rod of all complaints uh, at school. I, uh, my wife and I, we attend, we have uh, four children. We have three boys who are, for the most part, grown and uh, on their own. Uh, one son who lives with us during the summer, Seth, he's here today. And then my daughter, who is uh, not with us today, but she, is, uh, she stays with us as well, lives with us. She is um, going to be an eighth grader coming, coming this, this coming year. We attend uh, North Park MC. Uh, we're not actually not that far north, and we don't, we don't go to a park either, but North Park MC. And so I thought this would be a good time just to correct something that um, I think Jeff said last week, Jeff Miller said last week, no, Jeff, we have the best MC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's pray. Father, um, 
this subject is humbling. It's crushing in one way, Father, for as we consider the reality of our existence here and the trouble that is all around us and even within us, Father, um, we do question the very things that we are expressing, our confession, our statement of faith. We... We struggle with your goodness in the midst of the pain and the suffering that uh, comes our way. But Father, we thank you and bless you that there is hope, hope that is found even in this passage. And so I pray, Father, that as we consider that story that is so familiar to us during the Christmas season, and yet, Father, one that a little portion of this that we uh, overlook, that we ignore, that we Um, pretend maybe even isn't there. We pray, Father, you'd speak to our hearts today. Um, Minister to us in the ways that we are all suffering in some way. So, Father, um, thank you and bless you uh, for what you will be doing through your word in our hearts by the Holy Spirit for your honor and your glory and our good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who even makes this prayer possible. Amen. Well, this morning we are questioning, we are facing this question. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? Now, in a typical introduction, it is my job to kind of show you how this may be relevant to your lives But I hardly need to do that today. The very subject, suffering, speaks to everyone's experience in this room. There are all kinds of suffering going on today in varying degrees. We suffer physically, we suffer mentally, we suffer emotionally, we suffer spiritually. You're a child and you stub your toe. You're a teen who is shunned by classmates. You are a single who longs for companionship, a parent who watches a child go astray, a 50-year-old who experiences divorce, the elderly who can hardly walk. We all suffer. So this isn't some theoretical question Oh, no, it's personal. And more than that, it isn't as if there are just a few skeptics here. No, we all have been skeptics at one time or another. And so we have questioned, if God is so good, why does he allow suffering into my life? Or perhaps you're asking that, why are you allowing it in my life today? Certainly in this passage read for us, there there were some mothers and fathers of these baby boys who were asking, why? Why, God? Or perhaps, where were you? Or, if you're God, why didn't you prevent this horrible death? 
in light of this question, if God is good, then why does he allow suffering? I want to show you in this passage that this passage ultimately points to this truth. Suffering is a gift of God that not only attests to his existence, but to his goodness. Suffering is a gift of God that not only attests to his existence, but also to his goodness. When mountaineers climb like K2 or Mount Everest, they establish a base camp where all the resources are, where they're all, all stashed. Attaining to the glory of the summit then requires a number of smaller camps along, along the way. So when we are attempting to ascend the summit of the glory of suffering, we need to first of all understand what our base camp is. And our base camp today is going to be Matthew chapter 2, really just these few verses, 16, 17, and 18. But then I want us to have some other camps that we are going to be going to. Uh, so be prepared for a few smaller camps along the way. We are going to be going to Genesis chapter 3, Psalm 88, Isaiah 53, and 1 Peter 2. Now don't worry, we're not going to look very, we're not going to stay there very long at those camps, Um, but we need to go there. We're going to briefly visit them. But even in these scattered camps that I've just described for you through Scripture, you can come to some point of encouragement to recognize that all through Scripture, God is addressing this very question of suffering. Suffering is a gift of God that not only attests to his existence, but to his goodness. So to show you this, I want to answer really five questions The first question is this, how is suffering an evidence to the existence of God? How is suffering an evidence to the existence of God? Now, this is a remarkable account here in verses 16 through 18. Really, I would say is even probably evidence of Scripture, that Scripture is truly the Word of God. Because who in his sane mind, in his reasonable mind, would want to tell you, try to convince you of the goodness of God, of the love of God, and then he includes this this event, unless it was God speaking through Matthew. We are offended by several things in this passage. First, we are offended by Herod. See, Herod was a king. He wasn't the king. He wasn't Caesar. But he was appointed as the ruler of this Roman province called Judea. He was, he was a capable man. He was a great builder. Uh, he was crafty. He was not to be trusted. He changed sides on a whim to suit his own purpose. And he was also cruel, like many self-absorbed egotists. He distrusted anyone whom he believed may be taking over uh, his rule. So over time, he had his brother-in-law killed, his wife executed. Later, he executes his mother-in-law. His lust for power, dark suspicion, almost insane eagerness to avenge any wrong that was done to him ultimately led him to even kill three of his own sons. He was cruel. 
So no surprise that if he is driven to that kind of, uh, to that kind of cruelty around the table to kill those who ate around his, his table, uh, he would have no problem slaughtering nameless children of a uh, out-of-the-way place, uh, a small village called uh, Bethlehem. So that we see here back in our passage, verse 16, it says there, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. See, the word tricked has the idea of being mocked. Herod's perception of the motives of the wise men is they were actually mocking his authority. They didn't return back to him like he had asked them to. Not realizing that their motive was just simply to be obedient to God. Verse 12. It was Herod's whose motives were truly sinister. See, in verse 3, we find him troubled by the news that there is this, that there is a possible contender king. He didn't care how old or even to what level this was a credible threat. His was a rule that squashed any possible threats, and so he lied to the wise men, verse 8, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may come and worship him. His real aim was to learn the exact information needed to discover and destroy the child. When his unsuspecting informants, the wise men, failed to return, look at the middle, look there at the middle of verse 16. He was furious. It's a strong word. In the Greek, it's in the passive tense. Okay, so there's my educational part coming out there. Passive tense, uh, meaning that he was being acted upon. He, he had lost control of his emotions, being controlled by the circumstances outside of himself. It's those moments in life when you flip out by something outside yourself. The wise men's failure to obey, coupled with his perceived take on their motives, caused him to lose control. He is fully controlled by his passions at this point, so that what little judgment he might have, he had been blinded by his anger. And so he did the unthinkable. He gave the order for his soldiers to slaughter any male child two years old or under. But also notice that he was calculated. Look at the end of verse 16. He says it was according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. He did calculations. Cold calculations. Cold math. And he gave himself a wide margin, not, not only kill, he says, not only kill the, the chi- children in Bethlehem, but all those in the region. And he calculated the outer edge of the time, and he also provided both a specific and vague location so that this proud and cruel, jealous tyrant used shocking barbarity to destroy any threat to his power. And so we are offended. We're offended by what Herod has done. So to some degree, we can answer the question, where does or did or does suffering come from? Well, we can say, well, most of the time it comes from the hands of evil people. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? Where does evil come from? Where does suffering come from? 
For at first glance, we're also offended by God. He warned the wise men, verse 12, not to return to Herod. He warned Joseph to take the child and flee to Egypt. But he didn't warn the parents in Bethlehem. Matthew says, beginning in verse 17, God permitted this slaughter so that the scripture could be fulfilled. Not much comfort to a mother or father who's just lost a child. So we're offended. First glance, we're offended, and it's within this offense that there is the evidence of the existence of God. I didn't say proof, but I did say evidence. So Lewis Lewis recognized that the modern objection to God are based on a sense of justice. We believe people ought not to suffer, to be excluded, to die of hunger, to die of oppression. But if God doesn't exist, then the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on suffering, death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These are perfectly natural in an atheistic world. And thus, we ought not to be offended by this event. No, our very offense assumes that the reality of an extra-natural, or could we say supernatural, standard. So suffering attests to his existence. But what about his goodness? See, here at base camp, there must be something more, something good for Matthew to reasonably include this story in the description of the birth of the one, Jesus, who in chapter 1, verse 21, we are told uh, this hopeful news that he will save his people from their sins. Or we are told in the same chapter that this one Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet's words, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us or whom Matthew describes the wise men worshiping an act reserved only for God. But who would worship a God like this, like this, who allows this kind of suffering unless Matthew knows something else that we don't know? I grew up in Colorado. Um, a quest for those who love the mountains is to climb all 53 14-teeners, that is 14,000 feet or above. A number of them you can climb without any kind of technical climbing equipment. Matter of fact, the tallest mountain, Mount Albert, can actually be climbed by pretty much just a normal uh, hiker uh, along the way. But, but when you are climbing any one of those mountains, you come to points where you are practically facing the, the, the wall, the rock wall of that mountain. And it's at that point when you begin to question, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> Your legs are starting to feel achy. Your ability to breathe is, 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 is becoming less and less. You're, 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 you're thirsty. 
and you're facing this rock wall. It's at this point when we got to remember the summit. We got to remember what's going to be up there at the top of the summit and the view that we are going to see. So consider the view from the summit. Matthew knows this, and he knows this, that this story must be understood within the context of a greater story of God's story of our story. And so let me just step out here for a moment in application, and that is that when you are suffering, when we are suffering, if you are suffering, this needs to be your strategy. When you are suffering, particularly when you can't find any sense or purpose in it, we need to just simply periodically remind ourselves of the bigger, grander view of the summit. Suffering is a gift of God that not only attests to his existence, but his goodness, which brings us now to that second question, where did suffering come from? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Or we might even put that into the present tense and ask, where does suffering come from? Not only where did it come from, but where does it come from? God's story, our story, begins this way. Uh, The one who had no beginning, the uncreated one, the self-existent one who has no needs, created. God created. The perfect God created perfect creatures. And we know this from Genesis chapter 1, where at the end of each creative day, he said, it is good. And then he came to that that last day of his creation, uh, the creation of humanity, Adam and Eve, and he says, it is very good. Making an emphasis on the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve as being perfect. The story continues. He takes this man and woman in this place of beauty filled with good gifts for them to use and enjoy so that they would make the sensible conclusion. It's this. Well, if the God, if these finite good gifts are good, just imagine how good the infinite gift giver must be. The source of it all. In some, they were made to enjoy and love the relationship with God himself. It's like someone coming to you and taking you to a, an amazing uh, mansion or a cabin or a house that has all of these amenities, and they say, this is all yours. Now, you're going to ask, well, who's, who owns this? And say, well, he'll come and tell you. He'll, he'll, he'll show up one day. You just enjoy. And so you do. And you begin to enjoy all the wonders there. But the problem is that you're alone. You think, oh, you know what? What would make this really enjoyable is if I had other people to share it with, to enjoy it with. Yes, uh, because he is the everlasting spring of goodness, it is impossible to truly enjoy him fully in isolation. So one of the lessons of Genesis chapter 2 we need a community of people. We, need, we were made to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we were made for. You were made to enjoy God, and you can't do that alone. You need community. You need others to help you do that. For this to be possible, to love Adam and Eve were given 
free will. Freely to choose to love God. See, it's the only way the love can exist. For forced love is not love. And this is where our story takes a tragic turn. They fell. Taking the good gift of life, heart, soul, mind, and strength. They took these good gifts and they terminated their love on themselves. The taking of the fruit was only that observable action of what had already occurred in their heart, the source, and that was that they had a cold and dead heart toward God at that moment. So it goes like this. God created the fact of freedom. We perform the acts of freedom. He made evil possible. Men made evil actual. When evil entered the world, it is so pervasive. It feels like it is a created thing, a substance, like a virus. It, it feels like a rival opposing dark force. Use the force, Luke. In our universe, but evil is not a created thing. It's not a substantive force as if God created it. No, evil, here's the definition. Evil is simply the absence of what is and should be good. These perfect beings, part of the perfection, having a free will, chose to love themselves over God. And at that moment, evil exists in their heart, for there was an absence of a love of God. And at that moment, evil existed in their community. They became suspicious of one another and began to cover their nakedness. Love for one another became absent, and pain entered the world. Now listen again to what God had said to the woman and the man. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 3. I will surely multiply, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You heard the word pain, pain. The absence of good is evil, results in pain. Suffering. This is our legacy. We are the authors of evil. When our first parents fell, all of creation fell. Paul describes in Romans 8 the soulless part, that inanimate part of creation is in a state of decay and groaning. Our soulless world is suffering. This is our legacy. But worse, we are born with an absence of good in our heart for God. Our heart is stone cold toward God and thus toward one another. Oh, yes, we still have a free will now, but now our free will can only be consistent with our hearts. And so we choose according to that heart. And thus, specifically, we are the authors of evil. 
And so people suffered our very hands, and we are sufferers at their hands. This is our personal legacy. Third question. Why does suffering have to exist? Uh, this really is a summit question. This, this is generally trying to grasp the existence of suffering as we get the daily dose of suffering in our world through our, our favorite news feed. And, and, and perhaps we could say God would like to get rid of suffering, but he just can't. Or in other words, he's just not powerful enough. Is he really in control? Well, here at Camp Genesis, we get a clue. Our answer is found in that part of Genesis chapter 3 I didn't read. It is the first words of our God after the fall. Genesis 3:14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. Heal. See, he's talking to another perfect, perfect created being, Satan, an angel, a rebellious angel, and he's talking to the spiritual created being who also chose to rebel uh, with his free will. The first thing he says there is verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is he promising here? He's promising suffering, enmity, at odds with one another. It exists between humanity and this rebellious spiritual being and his order. These spiritual rebellious beings tempt and use, and use human beings to bring suffering into the world. Barbarous, senseless, horrific suffering is done by the hands of human beings who are doing the bidding of the enemy of our soul. And in so doing, these human beings are losing their humanity and their very souls world history, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, Herod. But you don't have to look at world history, do you? You can turn to your own personal history. Suffering here at the hands of human beings who are or were unbeknownst doing the bidding of our enemy at the peril of their own souls. But why? But why all this suffering? Well, God is not finished with Satan in this verse. Look at the last part of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this? Well, this is another promise. Satan will suffer a fatal blow at the hands of one of Eve's offspring who will suffer all of the absence of goodness Satan can muster against him. In other words, suffering will defeat suffering. But I haven't fully answered the question of the, of the summit. Why does suffering exist? And I can't really until I answer this question that's more personal. So back to base camp, Ephesians 2, excuse me, Matthew 2, verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping loud in lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Second, third, sorry, fourth question. What is the purpose of my suffering? 
as we're climbing this mountain, as you're climbing this mountain, and you're facing that rock wall, and you're feeling the fatigue and the pain, this is no longer a general question of why suffering exists in our world. This is personal. This is real gut-wrenching Weeping and loud lamentation, verse 18, that would have been heard in Bethlehem and in its surrounding regions as mothers and fathers mourn the loss of their baby boy who suffered at the cold end of a steel of, of a sword. And it sounds something like this. Why, God? Or where were you? It's the real-world cry of the Syrian parents who, in fleeing their war-torn nation for the good of their child in a leaky, overloaded raft, only find themselves mourning over her lifeless body washed up on shore after the raft sank. It's the real-world muffled cry of children suffering at the hand of abuser somewhere here behind closed doors in the Quad Cities. It's the real world silent cry of the unborn child when in his safe world is invaded by an abortionist and then his mother has to silently suffer for years pressing down that question, where were you, God? Why? And a thousand other scenes of suffering. It's that in the face of the mountain rock question. Here's my answer. I don't know. Why did these parents in Bethlehem have to suffer? I don't know. It's why Psalm 88 exists. We're not going to read it, but I want you to be aware that it exists. See, this, this camp doesn't make any sense. It seems to be way off, way off the beaten path to get to the summit. It's way out there. See, for years I wondered, why does this psalm exist it is the most hopeless psalm of all of the psalms. I think I'm in pretty good ground to say it's probably one of the most hopeless chapters in all of Scripture. And it is where, it is there where we find hope. How can a psalm, which is an expression of being devoid of hope, bring hope? Well, if your hope is in your circumstances, then there's no hope to be found in Psalm 88. If your hope rests in your ability to figure life out, to solve your problems, then there's no hope to be found in Psalm 88. But if you are hopeless, this is where you want to go. Paul Tripp, the biblical counselor, theologian, writes about this psalm. He says, the hope of Psalm 88 is found precisely in the fact that there is no hope in it. It isn't wrapped up, wrapped with some pretty theological bow at the end. Psalm 88 is hopeful because of its stark honesty and profound darkness. 
And then he asks the question, did you ever share a painful story with someone and realize that they just don't understand why it was so difficult for you? That kind of experience begins to get at the wonderful hope of Psalm 88. Why visit this camp? First, Psalm 88 reminds me that the God in whom I hope gets it. He gets the dark, suffering places of your soul. He gets it. Second, now that you know you can come to him when you are utterly lost, confused, and you can, you can cry out your hopeless cries with confidence. And third, Psalm 88 tells us how deep and how wide and how far the arms of our Redeemer extend God's grace is not wimpy. It extends with life-altering power to the deepest level of suffering that comes as a result of the absence of good in our world. So in a very real sense, I don't know why God allows your suffering. Matthew knew there wasn't anything to be said to these parents in Bethlehem. If you notice back there in our passage, they refuse to be comforted because their children are no more. You can't change that. There is no hope in some pretty theological bow for the, for the narrow lens of someone suffering, for the sta- staring at the rock wall. They don't want to hear that. You know what they want to hear? They want to hear you weep. The sufferer wants you to hear you weep with them. Weep with those who weep. But for Matthew, there was something much better at the view of the summits, and it's revealed within, revealed within the Word of God. Remember, remember what he did there back in our base camp? He quoted Jeremiah. It reminded him of another place in time when God's people suffered greatly and there seemed to be no hope. Ramah was located five miles north of Jerusalem. It was a staging place, a a concentration camp, where the conquering Babylonians gathered all of God's people to send them off into exile. See, there was no lower time in Israel's history than this time in which they have been overrun by the Babylonians and they're being taken into Israel. It would have been unfathomable to Israel's forefathers. It would be like George Washington watching Amazon's alternate universe series, uh, Man in High Castle. Where where the United States, two-thirds of it, the eastern two-thirds, are are overrun by Germany, because of World War II, and the last third, the west, is overrun by the Japanese. Rachel, in our passage, was symbolic and could be likened to Martha Washington. Martha would have wept at the destruction of the United States, and so Rachel, seemingly hopeless... But it's within this context of the seemingly hopelessness that Matthew would have understood the context of Jeremiah's words because he knew what was coming. He knew the next verse. 
So he quotes verse 15 of Jeremiah 31, but here's the next verse. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Verse 17, there is hope for you in the future. And then it has something to do, Matthew knows, with the new covenants. Because the rest of Jeremiah 31 is about the new covenants. So Matthew includes this horrific event to convince us of two things. Number one, God loves us. At the moment of the fall, he could have just wiped us out, started all over again with new perfect beings with the freedom of the will to love him, but he doesn't. Rather, he promises suffering, and the one would come to suffer to end suffering. Why? Well, here's the vista. Here it is. We're looking out on the summits. Here's the vista. The view. Why does God allow suffering to exist? To reveal the depth of his love for humanity. Jesus was born to enter into suffering in order to suffer on our behalf to reveal the Father's love for us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for us, 1 John 4.10. Propitiation, the one who's going to take all of God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. He suffered God's anger and took God's wrath in our place on the cross. And now consider our own good father, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Matthew includes this horrific event event to show us that God loves us and God is good. See, the death of Jesus was qualitatively different from any other death. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. And Jesus experienced the injustice of the suffering of those innocent children in Bethlehem. We are offended by Herod's slaughter because these children were innocent. And in a broad sense, that is accurate. They were incapable of human crime that was proportionate to the death. But on the other hand, if the term is intended to indicate that those who are free from any sin or guilt whatsoever, that would be contrary to Scripture. Those two-year-olds were not innocent. We are born with a heart absent of a love for God. We are born at odds with God. We are conceived as sinners. The greatest injustice in all eternity happened at the cross where the innocent one died in the place of these little boys. He died in their place and in 
our place. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted by him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed out, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The son suffered in our place. And the father suffered as well. See, he took that great journey as well. The son took the journey. The son is taking, walking up that mountain. He's facing the rocks. And the father did that as well. See, the great mystery of the cross is God's pleasure. Did it bring him pleasure to see his son tortured and suffer on the cross? Did, did it bring, does it bring God pleasure in the suffering of the children of Bethlehem? Uh, does, does God find some pleasure in the suffering in the world? Does he find pleasure in your suffering? No. No, when God looks at the rock wall of suffering or wicked events, he sees tragedy or the sin for what it is in itself, and he is angered and he's grieved. He, God the Father, felt the grief that these Bethlehem parents felt as they watched, as, they, as he, excuse me, watched his son suffer on the cross. he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. But when God looks at suffering or the wicked event at the summit, he sees the tragedy or the sin in relationship to everything else leading up to it and everything flowing from it on into eternity. So he sees that and he's pleased. He, he's got it. He's got your suffering. It's in his plan, as the cross was in his plan. And we know this for at that greatest moment of wickedness, the greatest injustice to ever occur. There at the cross, he was pleased at the suffering of his son for what it accomplished. And we know that from verse 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul, the son's soul, makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, the father shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He, he is not pleased with your suffering in one sense as he's staring at the walls. You're staring at the wall. He gets it. We know that from Psalm 88, and yet he is pleased as he sees, as he sees it all. He's got your suffering. He gets it. It's in his plan. 
God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. And God truly is Emmanuel. God with us, even in our worst suffering. Suffering is a gift that not only attests to his existence, but to his goodness. And let me just end with this. Why is, how, how is suffering a gift? At last camp, and we, we're just going to walk by. But First Peter chapter 2, so many other camps that we could go to. First Peter chapter 2, 18 through 21. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And he goes on and talks about the redemption of suffering. It's a gift because he wants to continue to redeem you, if you will, continue to kill sin in your life and bring joy to you through your suffering. And he wants to use you through your suffering to bring others into the fold. It's a gift. Suffering is a gift that not only attests to his existence, but to his goodness. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Father, that your grace is robust enough to cover all of the suffering that is going on in this room today, that's going on in this body, that's going on in the body of Christ. Father, when you say God is with us, you weren't kidding. <laughs> Suffered on our behalf that we might have life in Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Son. Thank you that he took our sins in his body, suffered for us, died there on the cross so that we could have life with you, fellowship with you, communion with you, that we could enjoy this supper together. As we suffer together, Father, that we can enjoy a supper. Thank you. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.